Hi, this is Pastor Nelson Mercado. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast from the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. I hope you are blessed by today's message. Let's bow our heads. Thank you, Lord, because you are indeed an awesome God. You have shown us that time after time after time. We thank you for your love and mercy and grace. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for your spirit. And we ask that his presence be upon us now as we open your word. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you uh, may remember some time ago, I shared a story of, of an old man, an elderly man, James. James was uh, retired. He, um, one Sunday morning, came to our fire station because he was complaining of chest pain. Some may, may remember that story. And he, he came prompted by his neighbor. He thought he was having indigestion. But he came prompted by his neighbor. He said, all right, well, I won't go to the hospital, but I'll go to the firehouse because they know me there. They'll check my vital signs and everything will be fine. So he came. We checked his vital signs, put him on our heart monitor, and, you know, realized that James was having a heart attack. And just like that, James went into cardiac arrest right in front of us. So, technically, James died right in front of us. Of course, we did what we were trained to do, and James was brought back to life. So now the obvious question, why did James need to be revived? Why did he need to be revived? Because he, he was dead, right? He was dead. James needed revival because he was dead. Now I want you to keep that in mind as we go along our message today. There's a, a statement that uh, Mrs. White makes, there's various places you can find it, but I, I, I gathered it from uh, Christian Service, page 42, so you can write that down because it's a powerful and important, relevant statement for our day today, Christian Service, page 42, and she says, A revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. To seek this should be our first work. Let me repeat that. A revival of true godliness is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. To seek this should be our first work. So notice what she's saying here. She's talking about revival. And she says that our greatest need today is revival of true godliness, which if, if, if we need a revival, what is the implication? The implication is that we're dead. The implication is that true godliness in the church today is dead. This is not what I'm saying. This is what she says. Revival. Our greatest need is revival. Now you may say, well, pastor, that sounds a bit judgmental. Well, let me, I, I want to share with you a few statements with the, with the intention of making us think and realize the need of revival in our church. Now, I've done this before. Some of you know who, um, who comedian Jeff Foxworthy is. Jeff Foxworthy does his little bit, if this, that, and the other, you are a redneck, right? And I've used this before. I'm going to use the same sort of style with these statements to make us you know, hopefully realize the need of revival in, individually and in our church. So, if our earthly interests and occupations are more important to us than the eternal ones, then we might need a revival. 
If we would rather watch TV and read secular books and magazines than read the Bible and pray, we might need a revival. If our church potlucks, when we, of course we don't have them now, but when we were, if our church potlucks were better attended than Wednesday, Wednesday night prayer meeting, we might need a revival. If we would rather make money than give money, we might need a revival. If God's people are more concerned about their jobs and their careers than about the kingdom of Christ and the salvation of the lost, we might need a revival. If we are more concerned about bickering over political matters than about our mission to reach the lost, we might need a revival. And I can go on along, you know, with similar statements like these. But I hope that that at least has, has made you realize, hold on, then, you know, I guess that, that we do need a revival. And if we do need a re revival, if we acknowledge that, then we're acknowledging that we're dead. That we're dead. Now, about 15, 16 years ago or so, uh, some of you know who Pastor Dave Asherick is. Some of you know who, who Asher, David Asherick is? Uh, he was uh, uh, the, the invited speaker at the Pennsylvania Conference camp meeting. This was back, I think it was 2005, around there. And uh, he, he preached the message that was so impactful and influential to me about the need of revival back then. You're talking about 15, 16 years ago. That today is a lot more relevant as we start 2021. And had such an impact on me uh, that, that some of what I'm going to share with you today comes from that message. In fact, the title of that message that he, was The Logic of Revival. And so I've titled the message today, The Logic of Revival. I want to share some of what, what he shared with, the, with us you know, 15 years ago. It had such an impact on me. I thought that would be certainly relevant for us today. Now, when we talk about logic, there are certain rules, laws of logic, as it were. There, there are laws of logic in different fields, in philosophy, in physics, theology. There's different laws of logic. And a law of logic basically goes on to say, it can be summed up by saying, if this happens, then this will be the outcome. It's a law of logic. If I do this, then this will be the outcome. A law of logic. So, for example, if I say, if I jump from a three-story uh, three building, what is the outcome? Well, the outcome will be I'll, I'll either get badly hurt or, or killed. If I do this, this will be the outcome. Does that make sense? That's the law of logic. And in the Bible, there are, as you can imagine, there's laws of logic. And our scripture reading for today is an example of a law of logic. So let's go there to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 10 through 12. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. These are the words of the Apostle Paul to young Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 12. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of all of them the Lord delivered me. Aren't you glad that he did deliver them? But Paul is basically saying, listen, you know me, 
You know my ministry. You know the things that I've done and the things that I have had to endure because of that. You know that Paul was persecuted. He was stoned. He was left for dead. That's what he went through. And so he's telling Timothy, yeah, this is what I went through. And then he, he shares the law of logic. Verse 12. Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So what is our logical statement for today? The logical statement is that if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. And by the way, of course, the, 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 it is logical for us to, uh, uh, to conclude that it is not just desiring to live, but it's actually carrying out. So when Paul says, if you desire, and of course, he is the example, he lived a, Christ, a, a, a godly life in Christ Jesus, he suffered persecution. So it's not just wanting to, but it's actually doing it. So if you, if you want to live that godly life, if you live a godly life in Christ Jesus, then the because we can actually reverse a little bit that statement. So if we desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. So that means that if we do not, live a godly life in Christ Jesus, we will not suffer persecution. Or perhaps we could say it this way. If we are not suffering persecution, it could be that we're not living a life, a godly life in Christ Jesus. It's a logical statement. Logic. Now, of course, none of us wants to be persecuted, right? How many of you want to be persecuted? Nobody wants to be really persecuted. Okay, But I hope that we can all say with, with, with conviction, we want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Is that your desire? Let me see your hands. Are you, are, do you at home want to live a, a, a godly life in Christ Jesus? Well, if that's your desire, if you carry through, then the logical statement is you will suffer persecution. That's inevitable, friends. But now let me ask you a question. When was the last time you were persecuted? When was the last time you were persecuted? And by, by persecution, I mean much more than just that you ran out of gas in the middle of the highway, or you had a flat tire, or even if you got sick with this pandemic. I mean, more, uh, uh, mean much more than that. Persecution, if you were to define it, is a real hostility or ill treatment that is in particular related to your faith. Ill-treatment, hostility, because of your faith. That's persecution. Now, you probably have heard stories of Christians being persecuted. That certainly doesn't happen in, in, in North America that we hear about, but we, we hear about persecution of Christians in other parts of the world, don't we? How, how Christians are literally being killed because of their faith. They, 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 they lose their jobs, they, they lose their livelihood, and in some cases their life. Uh, you know, I, I always am impressed about Christians in China. As you know, Christianity in China is outlawed. Uh, uh, you, you can't have a church in, uh, in, in, in China. And so they have these, these underground churches, if, if you will, okay? But, but the fact of the matter is that, that the Christians over there literally take their lives in their hands by going to church. This doesn't seem to be happening today here in North America. In fact, I think we're laying down too easily here in North America. And yet over there, Christians literally 
are, are taking their lives in their hands. They know that. And they risk their lives to do it. That's persecution. That's persecution. That's what I'm talking about. If you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will suffer persecution. But what does it mean to, to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? What, what, what does that look like? Well, let's, uh, we're, we're, to, to answer that question, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 5. So go to Matthew chapter 5 with me. Matthew chapter 5 is the Sermon on the Mount, the words of Jesus. And as we start uh, uh, Matthew 5, we're going to be reading the Beatitudes. You're familiar with the Beatitudes. You've heard the Beatitudes before. Well, the, the Beatitudes are structured in such a way that they form sort of like a ladder, a ladder uh, of our Christian experience. And as we go up the ladder, rung by rung, you'll find that, that you become more spiritually mature and you become more like Jesus, our Christian experience. So let's, let's start with verse 3, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be a poor in spirit? Well, in a nutshell, what Jesus is saying is that blessed are those who realize their spiritual poverty. See, that's the first step in our Christian experience. We must realize that we have a need, that we have a problem, that we have a sickness. Because if, if you don't realize you have a problem, you're not going to seek the solution. We talked about this uh, a few months ago, the grim reality of our lives. Grim reality, we are sinful. We have a sinful nature. The, 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 the good news is that we have a Savior. And so we need to realize our spiritual poverty because it is only when we realize our spiritual poverty that we seek the solution, which is Christ. We realize that we need a Savior. That's your first step in your Christian experience. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so now you realize that you have a, 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 you're spiritually poor. You mourn because of it. You're saddened by the reality of who you are and the nature that you have. In fact, I would say that these two, the first, one, the first and second go hand in hand. You, you realize you're spiritually poor because, and you mourn because you're spiritually poor, because you have a sinful nature, but then that leads you to Christ. Verse 5, or verse, uh, yes, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. By the way, verse 4 says, if you mourn, the promise is what? You will be comforted. You will be comforted, because now that leads you to Christ. You'll find comfort in Jesus. But blessed are the meek, verse 5, for they shall inherit the earth. So, so the third step is that and realizing that that we uh, have a problem, that we all have the same problem, we are humble before our brothers and sisters, and we realize that, uh, that they're not better than I, that you're not better than me, and I'm not better than you, because we're all in the same boat. All of us are sinners that come short of the glory of God. And so I don't have to be, you know, thinking think I'm better than you, because I am as guilty and as messed up as you are. Yeah, so we are meek. And you will inherit the earth, the promise is. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger for, and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. 
I want you to notice the logical progress here, the progression here. Once we realize our, our necessity, our problem, our spiritual poverty, our, 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 our sinful nature, and we mourn because of that, and of course that leads us to Christ, the, the fact is we also see every, everybody the same way because nobody is better than anybody else because we're on the same boat. Now we hunger for something we don't have. We don't have righteousness, friends. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. However, what happens when you haven't realized the spiritual poverty and had led you to Christ and had accepted the gift of salvation, now you are saved by grace through faith. Now, on account of Jesus, you are declared righteous. Righteousness by faith. It's not that we become righteous, not that we have righteousness, but praise God that we've been declared righteous. Yeah? Yeah. We are declared righteous. No, no, verse, uh, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So again, we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Our salvation doesn't come by anything we do or have done by the brownie points. Our, our salvation comes as a gift, a gift of grace that we don't deserve. And as we meditate on our own lives, think about it about how often we have messed up, how often we have turned our back on God, and we realize how merciful he has been to us, that God hasn't treated us the way we deserve. God has been merciful to me, and, and, and because when we meditate on how God has been merciful to me, that allows me to be merciful to you, because we're on the same boat, you see? It, it, it would be a slap in the face not, for me not to be merciful to you. Maybe you've done something against me, but, but, but I'm not going to be merciful to you. Whatever you do to me can't compare for what I've done to God, and God has been merciful to me. So I can be merciful to others. I, I want you to, 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 to notice that what's happening here as we're climbing up the ladder, there's a, a process of transformation taking place. Leads us to verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do you have a pure heart? How many of you have a pure heart? The Bible says, what does the Bible say in Jeremiah 17, 9? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We have a selfish heart. We have a heart of stone. But Jesus, God promises that he will transform our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. That purity of heart comes from him. It doesn't come from me. My heart is impure and filthy and, and, and hard as a stone for, because of my nature. But now God does the transformation. So you see, again, going up this ladder, going up, up the rungs, you are being transformed. You're being changed. Our dirty heart is being cleansed. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Of course, a peacemaker is somebody who, who seeks peace, who makes peace. You know, we have plenty of disagreements with other people. Disagreements with members of our family. Disagreements with uh, uh, co-workers. Disagreements with fellow members of our church family. And it's a sad reality that we live in a time when 
political matters have gotten so out of hand that have created separation and disagreements among members of the church family. That should never happen. So we're, as we're going up this ladder, you know, you notice that you becoming more spiritually mature. And when you're spiritually mature, you're, you, these disagreements, you may have disagreements, that's okay. We love each other, we can still be friends. You see? We're becoming spiritually mature Christians. And we all should want to become spiritually mature Christians. We all should be wanting to go up that ladder. Now, there's only one more rung in this ladder. Okay? But what I want you to notice is that when you climb this ladder, the each rung of this ladder of the, uh, the Beatitudes, as we've described, you become a significant threat to Satan and his kingdom. And what do you think happens when you become a significant threat to Satan and his kingdom? Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Meditate on that passage very carefully, considering what we've already gone over in our logical statement for today. When we individually, and when the church is so full of the Holy Spirit that we are communicators of Jesus' peace. When we become witnesses, when we become evangelists, when we're actually gaining souls for the kingdom of God, when we become a threat to the kingdom of Satan, the result is persecution. That's our logical statement, friends. If you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you it doesn't say you may, it says you will suffer persecution. But now, let us look at the church here in North America. In fact, why even go that far? Let's look at our own congregation. Are we being persecuted? Now, I, I don't claim to know everything about every member of my church individually. And those of you here, those of you who are watching, I don't claim to know that. It could be that you have or maybe even are going through some kind of ill treatment and hostility because of your faith. But in general, in general, can we say that we are being persecuted here at Nashville First? No. And let me tell you why. Satan has nothing to fear. For most of us. Let me, let me give you an illustration. This is something I, uh, I always uh, usually share when I have Bible studies. Let's just say that you are hunting for ducks. Now, I know we don't eat ducks the Seventh-day Adventist, but for the sake of the illustration, you're a duck hunter today. So you're out there hunting for ducks. You've been there all day, and not, you, know, you haven't had much success. And now you have only one round left in your shotgun. And now you're looking, at, looking around, and suddenly you see two ducks flying in the air. They're together. So you take your shotgun, you aim, you fire, you hit both ducks. Both ducks fall to the ground. You go over to where the ducks are because you want both ducks, right? When you get there, you see one duck is clearly dead. He's not doing anything. The other duck is flapping away, and is moving away from you. Which duck are you going to go after first? 
the one that's moving, right? The other one is dead. He ain't going nowhere. Satan wants the one that is moving. Well, friends, Satan is not worried about most of us. You know why? Because we're a bunch of dead ducks. He has us right here where he wants us, and we, have, we, we, we create no opposition. We're a bunch of dead ducks. Now, some of you may be thinking, Pastor, I don't know. This seems kind of judgmental. But this is not, this is really doesn't come from me. Let me share with you a statement made by Ellen White in the book Great Controversy. And you can write this one down, page 48 as well. Great Controversy, page 48. The Apostle Paul declares that all who live, who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Why is it then that persecution seems to, to a great degree to slumber? This is the question he's asking. She says, Paul says, that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Then why isn't persecution happening? This is what she's asking. The only reason is that the church has conformed to the world's standard and therefore awakens no opposition. These words are applicable today to us today in year 2021. The church has conformed to the world's standard and therefore awakens no opposition. In other words, we, instead of transforming the world, the world's transforming us. The religion which is current in our day is not a pure, uh, of the pure and holy character that marked the Christian faith in the days of Christ and the apostles. It's only because of the spirit of compromise with sin. Because the great truths of the word of God are so indifferently regarded. Because there is so little vital godliness in, uh, in the church that Christianity is apparently so popular in the world. Let there be revival of faith and power of the early church, and the spirit of persecution will be revived, and the fires of persecution will be rekindled. Why isn't persecution happening? Because we're too much like the world. Because we're nothing like the church that was in the time of the apostles. Let us change that. Let the fire start again, and you can count on it, persecution will come. The reason we're not being persecuted here in our day is because Satan has nothing to persecute. When the church, when this congregation is so full of the spirit that we become peacemakers, communicators of the peace of Jesus, when we become evangelists, when we share the gospel around the world and around those that are around us that we know, friends, persecution will come. That's the logic of revival. Now, I don't, I, I don't want to share this message to get you down, especially the first message of the year. But friends, I, I really think we should wake up. Amen. We should wake up and, 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 and start desiring that revival that is so much needed. I think we've been playing church for far too long. It's high time that we start acting like a godly church. Like we act, godly, uh, acting like we're godly people. It's time, it's time that we stop reflecting the world around us and start reflecting Jesus. Amen. That's the time. That's the time. The logic of revival. If you desire to live a godly life in Jesus, you will suffer persecution. If we're not suffering persecution, it is because we're not living a godly life in Christ Jesus. 
We have not climbed the ladder of our Christian experience. We have not gotten to the top because we are allowing too many things to get in the way. Remember, according to Mrs. White in Christian service, she said, the revival, a revival of true godliness is our greatest need today. That's what our greatest need is. Now, when we pray for revival, and, and we should be praying for revival, we should be praying for the Holy Spirit to be poured upon our church. In fact, uh, I hope that you've been doing that today. Again, a uh, day of, of fasting and prayer. That you're praying for that. But when, when we pray for revival upon the church, let us start by asking God to revive me. For God to pour out his spirit upon me. Because, friends, it has to start with us. Because when, when, when we are individually revived, when, when we individually are full of the Holy Spirit, then by necessity, the church will be revived and be fooled by the Holy Spirit. The church can never become corporately what we are not individually. The logic of revival. In 1940, Professor, Professor Edward Orne of Wheaton University he led a group of theology students to England where they visited, you know, famous sites of great revivals. And one location they visited was the Epworth Rectory, which was a part-time home of John Wesley. John Wesley, the famous reformer back of the, in the 1700s. John Wesley was a man of prayer. Wesley interceded for revival to sweep through England and to spread to America as well. So Professor Orr pointed out two worn-out places on the carpet next to John Wesley's bed where the great reformer knelt for hours in prayer each day, crying out for revival. As the tour concluded, the students loaded the bus, and after counting each of the students, Professor Orr realized that one student was missing. So he returned to the house and eventually located the student in John Wesley's bedroom, kneeling on the very worn impressions where Wesley had so fervently prayed for revival. And the student was repeatedly pleading, do it again, Lord. Do it again. When would you do it again with me? And placing his hand on the student's shoulders, Professor Orr said, son, it's time to leave. Everybody else is in the bus already. And so the student rose slowly. And then that young man, Billy Graham, joined the rest of his class. And through him, God did it again. God did it again. Why? Because Billy Graham was passionate for revival for revival to take place. How about you? Are you passionate for revival to take place? In the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3, verse 2, the prophet expressed the same longing. He said, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Lord, repeat them in our day. Like Billy Graham, the prophet was, in essence, crying out, do it again, Lord, do it again. 
Deep inside, I mean, doesn't your heart recognize or resonate with that same longing? Do it again. Aren't you just tired of, of, of reading in your Bible the stories of the great things that God did through his church and, and asking yourself, why isn't it happening today? Lord, I want it to happen today. I want to see God move more powerfully, more supernaturally today. I want it today. Why isn't it happening, Lord? Aren't you tired of that? I am. I am. Friends, uh, I think we need the spirit of, of the fire of the Holy Spirit in our Christian walk. Or, is it, or could it be that you're satisfied with cultural Adventism? Yeah, that's all right. As long as I go to church every week, I'll be all right. And now we're not even doing that. Amen. Satisfied with cultural Christianity. Friends, it's not that we want to be persecuted, but that we want to reflect Jesus so much that when Satan looks at us, he doesn't see the messed up that I am. What he sees and who he sees is Jesus with me. And if that's what it takes, if persecution comes because of that, then let it come. Because by the grace of God, we, have we are founded upon the solid rock, which is Jesus, and we'll be able to stand it. We'll be able to stand it. I wonder what would happen if we were bold enough to pray to God to do it again. To help me, to, to work in me so that I am revived. To cause a revival in Nelson Mercado and in Mary Bradley and, and, and in Erica Holstein, everyone that's here and those of you who are home. What a great way to start 2021 with revival. Keep in mind that when, you, when you're asking for your Bible, you're, you're acknowledging that you're dead. But that's okay, because we serve a God that can bring the dead back to life. And he can do it with us. And so today, I, I, want, to, I want to encourage us, and I would like to do this here this, this afternoon already. Those of you who are home can follow along as well. But I want us to kneel today and ask God to do it again. To pour your spirit upon me and upon our church for him to take care of what he needs to take care of. So this church will stand. So that we will shine for Jesus. Not be like everybody else. Not lay down too quickly, but to stand firm for Christ. It doesn't matter what it takes. If persecution comes, let it come because we're founded upon the rock that is Jesus. Will you kneel with me? Those of you who are home, you're welcome to kneel as well as we seek the Lord in prayer. Our gracious, loving Father, we are humbled today because you have called our attention into, into a reality that many of us are not comfortable with, a reality that we have conformed to the world and have not, are not standing and are not shining for you. Father, we pray for the forgiveness, for your forgiveness, because the reality is that we are being told to jump and we're saying how high. And yet we know, Lord, that they are those who around the world have, have even literally given their lives for your cause. What are we doing? You inspire Mrs. White to tell us the revival of true godliness is our greatest need today. 
We acknowledge that, Father. Here on the first Sabbath of year 2021, after everything that we've been through, today the reality is we need revival, and there's no greater need that we have than that. And Father, you know, obviously it, it could be that many of us have gotten stuck on that ladder. Maybe we started going up the rungs of that ladder, but somehow we got stuck. Somehow maybe we came down. Somehow we've, got, we've allowed things to get in the way, and, and, and our Christian experience is not what you want it to be. And it could be that's the reason why Satan is comfortable with us. Oh, Father, we pray that you will forgive us. Well, Father, we pray that you will remove whatever obstacle is in the way of us climbing these, this ladder of Christian experience. Lord, we want to get to the top. Lord, we want to be more like Jesus. We want to be a, ref a clear reflection of Christ. So that indeed, Satan has something to worry about. And Lord, indeed, we don't want persecution. But your word says somewhere that that uh, we're as precious as gold, and gold must be purified through fire. You want to purify us. We may have to go through the fire, Father, but if we're going through the fire because we're reflecting Jesus, then let it come. Let it come because we know that you're going to carry us through. That's what the promise of your word, that's what your word says. We will walk through the waters. It will not affect us. The fire will not burn us. You will take care of us. Father, I pray for this church. For each member of this church, Nashville first. This year may bring some good things. It may bring even some greater challenges. And each of us has to make a decision. Where do we stand? Oh, Lord, may we stand with you. May we stand with you even though things don't look good. May we stand with you even when we're told everything is getting worse. May we stand with you. Because ultimately, you are the God of power. You're the God of restoration. You're the God who brings the dead, uh, life from the dead. We have nothing to fear. Oh, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that you will do it again. That just like we read the stories there in the book of Acts about the, the mighty things that the, that the early church did. That the leaders, how, how, how zealous they were to, to help those in needs, how zealous they were of proclaiming your gospel. The gospel, as we're told, Lord, reached the entire known world in 30 years. What a challenge. And you have chosen us to do just that, and we're sitting back. Empower us to, through your spirit today. May this be the first day of the rest of our lives, as they say. May 2021 may be a, a year of victory for us individually and for us as a church, not only Nashville first. The churches around this conference, the churches around this division, the churches around our country, because ultimately we know that all this craziness is Satan's doing, and he's taking advantage of it. May we stand firm and not let, us, not let him throw us down. Thank you, Father. Thank you for what we know you're going to do. Thank you for willing, be willing to do it again in our lives and in the life of this church. We praise you. We honor you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for joining us. If you're ever in the Nashville area, come and visit us at the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. 
We're located at 2800 Blair Boulevard in Nashville, Tennessee. You may also visit us at nfsda.org.